Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the London School of Economics, and welcome to tonight's public lecture, which is jointly hosted by the Forum for European Philosophy, the Department for Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method, and the Center for the Philosophy at the National and the Social Sciences. I'm Gabriel Wollner. I'm a lecturer in the Philosophy Department at the and a fellow of the Forum for European Philosophy. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Katie Steele. Katie is a senior lecturer in the Department of Philosophy. She's involved with a project called Managing Severe Uncertainty, which deals with questions of climate change. Her research interests are decision theory, logic of evidence, questions of scientific methods, but as I understand, she's also more recently moving into ethical questions and questions of political philosophy. Her talk tonight is about climate change and global justice, or rather climate change vis-à-vis global justice, the floor is yours. Thanks, Gabriel. Thanks also to Juliana, who's now operating the, the nightclub lighting, <laughs> um, for organizing. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, uh, as Gabriel said, I, I um, am involved in this project to do with managing uncertainty, uh, and I'm actually interested in a number of uh, philosophical issues to do with climate change, uh, decision making under under uncertainty, uh, evidence confirming uh, climate change models, the logic of evidence representing the predictions of climate models. Uh, but also, I'm I'm interested in this question of climate justice uh, as well. So the ethics of climate change. Um, so. Just to kick off, I take the guiding question um, in climate ethics to be basically this one, who should take responsibility for dealing with climate change? Right? This is more or less the question that everyone's addressing. Um, so just to go through those terms, I'm not, I'm not going to say very much about the issue of climate change, this, the science of climate change. Um, I'm just, the starting position here is just uh, what I take to be the broad scientific consensus about climate change, which is a sensible place, uh, I think, for an ethicist or member of the general public to start. Uh, you can reference the latest uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC report. So basically, uh, the key points are just that the Earth's, point, the Earth's climate is changing, uh, and this is in large part human-induced in recent times, the main driver being the emission of greenhouse gases, prominently uh, carbon dioxide. Um, so predicted average global temperature, uh, if we compare the end of this century with the end of the last century, depends on the actual emissions scenarios, so exactly what we do in terms of how much we emit over the next uh, 100 years. Uh, and how that contributes to the overall stock of emissions, uh, which is the, the key point. Uh, it could be around one degree if we get our act together and start um, preventing emissions. could be around four degrees for uh, less stringent emission scenarios that unfortunately looking more realistic uh, at the moment. Uh, you can uh, look at sort of more precise figures in the IPCC report, what are the impacts? I mean, of interest, ethicists not particularly interested in average global temperature rise on its own. It doesn't um, 
doesn't really say anything to us, not, not very uh, easily related to human suffering. But, of course, the, the consequences of this kind of average global temperature rise uh, are, are disputed. Um, there's, there is much uncertainty surrounding particular regional predictions. Uh, there's healthy debates amongst climate scientists on the extent to which we can predict the actual consequences. But in general, uh, there'll be more severe, uh, varied weather events, changes in water cycles, uh, changes in agricultural conditions. Right. I mean, in short, we're looking at a rapid change in the Earth's climate that is unparalleled in human history. And rapid changes are usually bad for settled societies, right? And could be extremely bad. Uh, so, in the, you might think in the long term, you know, there's many, there's, there's a number of rapid changes in climate, right? And, and this one that we're, that we're looking at sort of is not unprecedented in the history of the Earth, but notice that the history of settled societies tends to be here, right? And uh, rapid changes in climate are not, are not a good thing for settled human societies who don't tend to be very flexible. So basically the, the take-home point is climate change uh, predicted to lead to a lot of suffering, human suffering. Dealing with, um, so typically people separate the, 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 the ways to deal with climate change into adaptation and mitigation. We, can, we could uh, put a lot of effort into adapting to this new climate, right? It varied in weather conditions as it may be. There may be limits to that adaptation. Or we can put our energy into preventing this change from happening, uh, chiefly by reducing our emissions. More recently, there's been these uh, geoengineering proposals, which are ways to try to prevent climate change without actually reducing our emissions by doing other fancy tricks, uh, which are not considered uh, very plausible at this stage. Um, we may also, dealing with climate change may also involve just compensation, right? Uh, if there is climate change and uh, we, we can't uh, facilitate adaptation, maybe some people need to be compensated. Right? Or if we need to mitigate and this uh, prevents people from development entitlements that they should have had, maybe they need to be compensated. Right? So really adaptation, mitigation and compensation uh, is what dealing with refers to. Who... Uh, so is this sort of individual people around the world? Uh, is it nation states? Uh, is it other actors at the international and national levels, companies and so on? That is an important question, the unit that we're looking at in terms of who should take moral responsibilities for this issue. I'm going to stick for the rest of the talk with discussing in terms of nation states. Uh, because that's the context that many people assume when they're thinking about climate uh, negotiations, right? Uh, you can, there's more and less principled reasons for talking about nation states. It might be a kind of pragmatic starting point. Uh, or you might think that nation states are important agents in their own right. Um, either way, I'm going to stick with 
discussing nations and their responsibilities. And then, of course, the key question is, okay, so who should do what, right, um, to deal with the, uh, this problem? Who, who has a responsibility to facilitate the prevention of suffering associated with climate change? Okay, so this is what I want to do. Basically, I want to give you a kind of an idea of what uh, people have typically talked about when when responding to that question. The the traditional responses to that question, right? And how how the debate has shifted somewhat. Um, Now, I, I, I won't spend so much time on these on these first cases, but they, they are important, I think, in terms of building up the, uh, the trajectory of the debate. Uh, this I, is the area that I'm more interested in. I'll get to that uh, eventually. This is sort of where I think the debate is at now um, uh, in terms of what other people are doing and also what I think is sort of the most fruitful way to proceed. But let's, let's start from the beginning So the traditional response, I think. So traditionally, the focus has been on mitigation just because uh, people tend to think there's limits to how we can adapt to severe sort of weather variability uh, for good reason. Um, And so the question sort of is translated to, uh, uh, first of all, working out this... This tends to be the, the, the steps in the, uh, in the approach. First of all, working out what mitigation goal the present generation owes future generations. Right? What's our greenhouse gas budget that we should be aiming for? Now, of course, this involves issues of intergenerational ethics. What, is the present, what should the present generation pass on to future generations here in terms of a stable climate? Uh, it also involves scientific considerations, of course. What can we predict to happen from various uh, emissions scenarios? But the first point is to come up with a greenhouse gas budget. For instance, in the Stern report, which is now a few years old, uh, the budget that Stern was going with was five, 550 parts per million carbon dioxide. Right? Um, some people suggest lower budgets are more appropriate. So note that carbon dioxide accumulates uh, in the atmosphere, so what's important is the total amount, right? And once we emit some, it doesn't go away for a long time, so we're basically sort of using up our quota of the budget as we emit. Um, Some people suggest less than 550 would be more appropriate. Other people uh, have more lenient budgets. But first we come up with this greenhouse gas budget... And then the question is, okay, what's a fair way to divide this up amongst nations? So this is the the traditional sort of climate ethics discussion. And the the very prominent response to that is equal per capita emissions, right? So uh, basically... The, uh, we have a kind of public good resource. Uh, it's, a, it's a slightly quirky one. We have, we have to call it something like the Earth's absorptive greenhouse gas capacity, right? right? Uh, and we have this public resource. Everyone should 
have equal shares of it. Seems fairly straightforward. Right. So equal per capita emissions, uh, very popular response. Some people interested in sort of his, historical accountability and what's happened in the past. You can still fit that with the equal per capita emissions just by backdating. Right? So maybe uh, many of the developed countries have already used up a fair amount of their equal per capita uh, uh, budget over the long term, and so they might get less than equal per capita from the present time onwards. A contending position is the idea of what's known as grandfathering. Uh, it appeals to this idea of first-in, first-served property rights. Uh, developed nations got there first, so they deserve to keep having more emissions rights. Uh, not too many supporters of that hard to make that look convincing basically so equal per capita is, is, is far and away the, the, the dominant response to that question so what's the worry about equal per capita emissions the, wor the worry as I'm putting it here is that it's both demanding and unprincipled right? it, it does look principled uh, if, if you take this one resource and think, well, you know, surely everyone should just have their, their equal share. But unprincipled from the perspective of wider theories of justice, right? And coupled with undemanding, it's not a great combination. Demanding and principled, not too bad. Undemanding and unprincipled, doesn't really matter. Uh, but demanding and unprincipled is an awkward combination. When I say demanding, I mean it's not conservative, right? Equal per capita emissions rights, so most people assume these rights can then be traded, uh, so they can be bought and sold. It's not the actual emissions that matter, just the rights to the emissions. Um, involve, are going to predictably involve massive transfers of money from uh, places that currently emit uh, quite a lot per capita uh, to places that emit not very much. Right? So there is obviously something appealing and that seems principled about the equal per capita uh, even though it is demanding involving you know, huge changes to current distribution of wealth. Uh, and that is because it does seem to approximate what we think, you know, what many people think global justice uh, uh, perhaps requires, and that's huge transfers from rich to poor, right? You might think, well, yeah, kind of makes sense. Equal per capita emissions is a way to sort of facilitate these transfers so that we have a more equitable world. If we're talking ideals, right? Uh, ideal theory, then that, that seems sort of in the right ballpark. But it may be a, a reasonable approximation of some accounts of global justice, but it's not actually carefully grounded in any account of global justice. So if, we, if we're going to be idealised, which is what equal per capita emissions is, then we want to have a, a, a careful account of global justice backing this up, right? And, and it's been pointed out very nicely recently by Simon Caney, who's a political philosopher who has done a lot of work on uh, climate justice, that 
If we think about it, no sort of popular theory of global justice does have anything directly to say about GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and none of them straightforwardly support equal per capita emissions. So the closest would be accounts that focus on fair distribution of resources. Uh, It might be a kind of account where you've got the resources of the world, they should be divided up uh, equally in the ideal case. Okay, we're thinking ideal at the moment. Um, but even those accounts would surely discuss bundles of resources. They wouldn't take sort of the Earth's absorptive capacity on its own and have a, have, uh, have a distribution that's isolated to that particular resource. One would then immediately ask, well, what about sort of the inequitable distribution of forests, oil supplies, other minerals... Uh, fishing rights and so on, are we going to have the same sort of equal division of these other resources? And if not, surely people who lose out on those other resources should get more emissions and so on. So it'll end up being a messier distribution of emissions rights than just equal per capita. Um, If you have a more, not a resource-based theory, but a forward-looking uh, teleological type theory that, that, that is based on something like welfare so perhaps your theory of justice uh, just concerns the appropriate distribution of welfare or opportunities uh, then the relationship with emissions is even less direct right um, so actually what you're interested in is, is the amount of welfare, welfare people end up with not directly the amount of emissions um, there are some places that um, have very high per capita emissions that uh, don't have as high welfare. Uh, different places uh, perhaps convert emissions to welfare um, with different efficiency. In a cold place, you need more emissions for heating, blah, blah, blah. So not, no direct relationship between um, a the- any of the theories of justice and Uh, emissions such that you'd get this very neat equal per capita emissions rights as being the ideally just um, response to climate change. Which is why I said it's demanding and unprincipled uh, in that sense. So, in fact, Caney, just before I get onto this next point, Caney, in fact, does advocate coming up with a more holistic uh, set of goals for global justice. Uh, in his case, he thinks these goals are quite demanding because he thinks we do owe people owe people quite a lot, regardless of national borders, right? Uh, and once we come up with our overall theory of justice or, or maybe we temper it so we have more realistic goals even though we have, a, we, we have some notion of what we would ideally want uh, then, at a, then subsequently we, could, we work out finally what this means for uh, 
uh, carbon dioxide emissions or GHG emissions. Right? That's the kind of scenario. That's the kind of approach to climate justice that he's recommending. That it should be part of a big picture. Right? It should. So this would mean that when we're negotiating climate at a, at a climate change in a climate change treaty. Uh, we'd be referencing sort of other international policies as well that contribute to the overall story about global, the, 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 status, the, the justice status of the global situation. Right. But that also has its, has its down points, right? That sort of approach, that, that very principled, ideal global justice approach. Uh, because we, we're left a bit at sea as to what we should be trying to achieve in, in a kind of focused climate change meeting, right? If the point is, no, 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 this is, this is just one aspect of the bigger global justice picture and we need to think holistically, it sounds nice, but quite hard to, to know where to begin in that situation. Right. Uh, so... Which is why there's something nice about trying to isolate the issue somehow. Okay. And in fact, that was one virtue of the equal per capita approach. It's, it's quite simple. It kind of isolates this one resource and just says, how, how ideally should we divide this up, right? Um, given our commitment to future generations. So... Can we think of a better? Is there an alternative return to, a, to an isolationist approach, sort of some kind of way of solving or, or discussing, at least, um, climate change justice that doesn't mix it in with every other issue at the global level? So... And bear in mind, the equal per capita emissions could be seen in that way as a kind of uh, isolation approach. You know, maybe it's a non-ideal, but uh, but good practically because it isolates the issue. But remember, it's also very demanding, uh, not conservative, involves huge transfers of wealth. So in terms of being a non-ideal position, perhaps not so convincing, right? Okay, so this is, the, this is the alternative isolationist idea, that we should rather isolate the problem, um, not the resource. So we deal with climate change mitigation, still concentrating just on mitigation as an isolated problem. What do I mean by that? So we might revise our question, right? So we're not going to try and tackle the big issues of global justice uh, in a climate change treaty. Rather, the idea is, even just as a useful benchmark, it would be nice to know what counts as a minimally just mitigation solution, um, or one that's at least not a backward step in justice, even if it doesn't make great strides towards the broader question of global justice, right? Can we isolate the problem in that sense? Um, 
So it's not to deny that there are not big pressing problems of global justice, but rather to try to take climate change mitigation apart from those problems um, and come up with some kind of solution to climate change mitigation that is at least not a backward step in justice, right? At least it's not counterproductive in terms of justice. Uh, and then we can, uh, we can work on global justice more generally uh, in other contexts. That's the idea of isolating the problem. Um, now, I should also say that, uh, so this is entering the domain of sort of non-ideal justice, which I think is very interesting, uh, in interesting sort of debate in political philosophy. I'm not, uh, I'm not going to be, I'm not pretending to sort of have the answer as, what, as to what minimally just amounts to, right? It's, uh, there, there's much more work to be done on this issue. Uh, but I'm going to sort of make some suggestions that gesture in that, in that, in that direction. Okay, so one uh, popular position that might be seen in this light, uh, advocated more recently <laughs> by David Miller, uh, earlier on by uh, this person called Traxler, uh, refers to the equal sacrifices view or the fair chore division. Right? Um, now, it looks a little bit like grandfathering, but the difference is, remember, grandfathering was sort of first, from, first in, first served property rights. Right? But an important difference is that grandfathering pretended to be an account of ideal justice, that actually... Uh, it mattered who got in there first as to what they legitimately held on to, right? Whereas these, I think, are best considered takes on non-ideal justice. Just how can we deal with this climate change problem in a way that at least doesn't amount to a backward step in justice, right? So there's no pretense in these views that, you know, this is what, this is what sort of global distribution requires, ideally, I think that's an important uh, point to bear in mind. So what, what do these accounts do? Well, they end up, uh, they actually retain this, a similar kind of obligation to the future. So they retain the demanding obligation to the future. So reasonably ideal in that sense, Right? So they might stick with, for instance, Stern's recommendation that our overall uh, emissions budget is five, 550 parts per million, right? as a kind of reasonable uh, holdings for the future. Um, so they retain this idea of, you know, we, we need to preserve a stable climate of a certain, uh, of a certain kind for future generations, but it's non-ideal or less uh, justice-oriented in the sense that there's less redistribution or less ba rebalancing of wealth amongst uh, the present actors, right? Uh, the present nation-states. So it's more conservative in this sense. So what's the suggestion? Uh, 
the suggestion from Miller is equal percent sacrifice relative to the status quo. Right. Now, quite a lot goes into this. Uh, the status quo is considered what a nation would do if there was no issue of climate change, unbridled emissions, right? uh, which you could, uh, you could call into question. Uh, as being an appropriate status quo. But the, so the status quo for the UK would be sort of business as usual emissions into the future, right? And the idea is that each nation, and this has to be plausible, kind of what are the emissions into the future? What's the plausible GD, GDP for trajectory into the future where GDP is sort of a stand-in for wealth, welfare, and so on? GDP per capita... Uh, trajectory into the future and we require of nations to make the similar, a similar proportional cut uh, in their projected GDP to deal with climate change. So everyone's making equal percent sacrifices uh, relative to that status quo. Uh, so the idea is that it's a kind of equal burden sharing but equal in the sense of equal proportion Proportional cuts. Right. Uh, Traxler refers to it as fair chore division. He uh, phrases it somewhat differently, but it's a, it's a similar a similar setup to this. Uh, the, the conservative redistribution amongst present actors would be uh, that uh, uh, the opportunity costs should be similar um, in terms of redirecting energy to mitigation. Right? So uh, nations that uh, are missing out on sort of principal uh, development opportunities have high opportunity costs if it's, sort of, if it's an issue of satisfying basic needs. Luxury, luxury uh, emissions amount to lesser opportunity costs. I think probably a more complicated way to think of it uh, this, this might be it's roughly the same and I think more straightforward to think in terms of equal percent sacrifice so of course you might think well how can this just seems to glorify the status quo right um, we're just allowing sort of the current uh, the, the, the current state of affairs uh, in terms of uh, distribution of wealth to remain as the benchmark and everyone has to make sacrifices relative to that benchmark. But remember that uh, that was the whole idea of this sort of proposal, right? We're isolating the problem of climate change and trying to deal with it in a minimally just way or at least trying to work out what that benchmark would be. Um, so the idea is how can we come up with a mitigation solution uh, that it's at least not a backward step in global justice. So you want to consider whether this at least doesn't amount to a backward step um, in terms of uh, the global community. That's the key question. Still, you might have reservations about this, uh, about this proposal in the sense that it's not clear why people would be on, why this was, would seem more attractive 
uh, to all players, right? So sure, it's attractive to the richer countries because uh, they had to do less uh, less of their share of, of the chore, as Traxler calls it, or contribute less to the chore of mitigation than they would have had to on other proposals. But by the same token, some of the other countries who think that they should be doing less to help mitigation because they were less of the cause of the problem, let's say, um, are having to do more on this account. So if it's framed in terms of who should do more of this chore of mitigation, it's not really clear why more conservative uh, is going to be appealing to everyone, more conservative as in less interruption to the current balance of power. So maybe it's a kind of awkward position here. A kind of it's not an ideally just solution, but nor is it perhaps sufficiently realistic or convincing, uh, especially to the developing countries uh, who are having to do more than they otherwise thought under some other proposals. At this point. Um, I think uh, a useful suggestion that's come up in, in recent times has been actually if we, if, we, if we want to come up with something minimally just, more realistic, it's better to focus on gains than losses, right? A lot of the discussion of climate change has been framed in terms of what people have to give up, right? How, what do they have to give up to contribute to this chore of mitigation? But rather... Uh, it might be useful even as, as a rhetorical issue to focus on actually what is everyone gaining from a climate mitigation treaty. Um, and that's not well captured in that previous proposal. right? So you might think if we're interested in minimally just, let's go sort of more uh, minimal or a slightly different direction, let's ask what sort of climate change solutions amount to a gain for everybody, a Pareto improvement, right? Because that would have more obvious motivational merit uh, if you can come up with something that has, is a gain for all. Now, this might just be a matter of language, Right? We can recast the chore as, in, as involving a gain for everybody. Uh, if we just stipulate uh, that, uh, if we stipulate what people, sh- what nations should count as a gain, so this, the, the, the virtue of passing on a more stable climate to the to the future uh, can be counted as a gain, right? Uh, and maybe a sufficient gain to counteract any losses associated with uh, losses in, in GDP per capita or loss, current losses in welfare, uh, or however you count the losses, right? So maybe in that fair chore division, we could just say the implicit assumption is that actually uh, equal percent sacrifices will make everyone better off, uh, and this is why it should be a compelling um, scenario, right? Mm. So the idea is, it's not an ideal case, but 
we can justify the way in which it's a conservative, uh, realistic uh, climate change solution by saying that it at least uh, keeps track, has an appropriate balance between the moral gains for each nation or each agent in this in this. Uh, negotiation and the, and their self-interested costs, right? There's a there's a, a reasonable balance between the costs for each actor and the types of moral gains that are involved, right? No one's asked to con- to make huge costs for for little gain, um, so it's realistic in that sense. So. I just want to finally uh, contrast that proposal with a more sort of thoroughgoing uh, uh, self-interest type based proposal, more thoroughgoing uh, Pareto type solution, right? Uh, one that's recently been proposed by uh, uh, Posner and Weisbach. Um, now, who are strong advocates of this Pareto improvement approach to climate change, isolating the climate change mitigation problem, recommending a solution that is to the gain of everyone involved. Right. Now, in this case, there's uh, basically each nation needs to think for itself what, uh, what it would gain from various future climate scenarios. Right, and how much it would be worth paying uh, for these scenarios. Um, now, there may be a collective action problem there as well, but let's ignore that for the moment. And then each nation basically contributes, uh, as long as they're contributing uh, or the, the costs that they're incurring are matched by the gains from the climate treaty because a stable climate uh, is in everyone's interest to the extent that they do value the future, Uh, then uh, we have a treaty such that all nations gain. Right. And their main point is, look, this this is not only a pragmatic way to deal with climate change, uh... Uh, because it's isolationist, right, and realist in, that, in appealing to, 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 to mutual gains, they also go further and say, actually, uh, it's, it's better that, uh, we, that we have a limited approach to climate change with respect to the bigger problem of global justice, because uh, global justice can be better serviced in other ways, right? We should save our broader concerns of global justice for other, for other treaties. Uh, they think that actually it's a bit patronising to assume that we should pass on a stable climate to future generations uh, and that we should protect the future generations of other countries uh, when we should be passing on more general resources like uh, basic wealth, uh, and allow these uh, other nations and other generations to, to uh, use the more basic wealth as they please rather than passing on resources in kind. Right. Now, 
the problem with that, of course, is if you, if you think that actually there are things that a global justice treaty can achieve, uh, there are things that a climate change treaty can achieve that other treaties couldn't achieve, namely a stable climate, right, that may not be substitutable with, with other goods. Uh, it may be imperative uh, to pass on particular good, as in the, uh, uh, a stable climate to future generations, uh, rather than other goods that can't actually be substituted for a stable climate. Uh, and to that extent, uh, certain issues do need to be dealt with in a climate change treaty. But still, this is in the spirit of isolating the problem of, of climate change and not trying to solve all of our global justice problems uh, in one treaty. So, just to finish off, I'm, I, so basically my, uh, my thoughts on this are that these latter... Uh, these latter approaches, the isolationist approach, uh, is very important and useful and that actually this is an, a very uh, crucial turning point in the debates about climate justice, this idea of isolating the problem and thinking at least as a benchmark as to what is a minimally just solution to the climate change problem, right? Uh, now, as for the details, is what we do think counts as a minimally just solution, and what, to what extent uh, uh, can we leave other questions of global justice to other contexts, other treaties, uh, is certainly an open question, um, and I think one that needs more, more work, right? Um, uh, so at this stage... <clears throat> uh, my, what, I, what, I, what I want to conclude with is just that, look, climate justice accounts that are both demanding and unprincipled are not terribly helpful, right, because that's a poor, poor combination. Um, now, the question is how far we should go towards demanding and principled um, in terms of providing helpful normative theories. Of course, there's always going to be a place for demanding and principled, I think. I mean, it's important to keep discussing notions of ideal justice. Uh, although, at the globe, at the, with respect to climate change, it, it probably is just a, one aspect of a, of a broader theory of global justice. Um, which is why, uh, now I say this, uh, we should uh, start exploring realistic and unprincipled. I don't really mean unprincipled, but rather just. Uh, non-ideal in the sense that I've been discussing, which is at least not being counterproductive to uh, global justice, right? But they, it also needs to be an account that's reasonably realistic. Uh, now, the, the Posner and Weisbach solution that I mentioned at the end is, uh, may have the advantage of being realistic in appealing to the actual self-interests of all nations in terms of their mitigation efforts, it may not be sufficiently. Uh, it may not be minimally just in the sense that it doesn't guarantee very much in terms of passing on a stable climate to future generations, uh, and it's assuming a lot about the extent to which uh, other treaties can pick up the slack of global justice. Um, uh, so, 
I think the important question is um, uh, where, where is sort of the happy medium um, uh, in this realm of realistic and, and at least minimally just? I'll end there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Katie, for the presentation and talk. We should have ample time for questions. I think we can go until um, 8 o'clock. So I think the floor is open to questions. Yes, please. We will come later on. Sorry? You want to be later on the list? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep you in mind and, and see whether anyone... Um, thanks very much. That was fascinating. I work on the kind of practical, political side of this, so it's really interesting to hear the theoretical, philosophical side of the debate. Yeah. I wonder to what extent you and some of the others working in your field reconcile the theory with the practice, actually yeah. look at what the parties, as they're known within the, the UN system, what they're actually saying around the ethics and the, the philosophy behind their proposals. Yeah, I mean, of course, the more the better, really, in fact, especially if you're interested in non-ideal justice. So I think if you're interested in ideal justice, and, uh, you know, at the time when ideal was thought to mean equal per capita emissions, it was recognized that this was, you know, way off what, uh, at least what the uh, negotiations looked like they were delivering. Um, but nonetheless an important moral benchmark to have there, right? Um, uh, but certainly if we start looking at sort of non-ideal... Actually, by the way, I think uh, a lot of the discussions, uh, even though they're not delivering on um, these sorts of proposals like equal per capita emissions, it still gets raised. So the issues of historical <coughs> responsibility that... Um, that uh, ethicists discuss sort of why would why would certain countries not be happy with um, sort of equal percent sacrifice views because they think that some countries have contributed more in the past and should be playing a greater role. I mean, this was uh, this was uh, prominently raised by Brazil along the, the negotiations. Equal per capita was coming up as a benchmark. So even if they're not being delivered. I think these principles do end up playing a role, in, at least in the discussions um, at these various climate negotiation uh, treaties. But, um, but yes, I mean, uh, it is important in terms of trying to match a certain realism with aspiration level uh, to try to keep track of, of what the current atmosphere of these negotiations actually is right, um, but clearly the very demanding proposals haven't been borne out in the past. Um, there's been a lot of talk about promises, uh, but the treaties that have required huge demands from some some countries, like Kyoto Protocol, required huge demands from the U.S. They just weren't signing on to those uh, treaties. So. Yeah, so there needs to be sort of a sum matching with what it's plausible that nations will do uh, without just being too cynical and, and saying that, you know, what, people's, what, what the current discussion is 
um, should limit our moral discussion. You sort of want the moral discussion to provide some kind of aspiration. Um, yeah, so that's a roundabout answer. The, the thing is, it, it, yeah, the more the more knowledge you have of the practical, uh, the atmosphere at these actual negotiation negotiating tables, the better. Uh, but that doesn't prevent certain moral proposals from being able to put, be put forward just from a logical perspective. And these proposals do, I think, influence those discussions, right, as well. Yeah. Um, I'm what, uh, somewhat um, astonished by, by the last proposal. Yeah, um, the Posner and Weisberg. Yeah, this, this uh, Torino improvement, I, 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 because concretely it would mean that Canada and, and Russia do not need to mitigate anything because they would win from climate change, so their, their cost is zero, they win. Uh, and then African countries, they have huge costs with, with climate change, so they, this would then create a reason for them to, to go very far in, 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 in contributing to um, uh, uh, mitigation and yeah, it's just uh, an unhappy coincidence. What would it achieve? So go far enough, and I don't see the ethical basis of, of it because it's very close to everybody just following his self-interest. Yeah. So I mean, there is something uncomfortable about it. Uh, yes, for sure. But let me just backtrack on your comment. So it's, it is, it is very uncertain what the regional changes, or there's definitely more uncertainty about the regional changes associated with climate change than there is about average averages. Or so the more fine-grained the spatial area, the more uncertainty it is about what the uh, what the actual uh, scenarios will look like. But I think. Uh, it's not widely thought that Canada and Russia would gain. And severe weather events uh, affect many places. Rapid changes in the overall climate uh, are not happy changes, right? Rapid change of any kind, um, just as a general rule, is not going to be a good thing for anyone. <coughs> so I don't think you should be thinking sort of just nice, warmer world at the poles. Um, so that's just an empirical point, but the, the rest of what you were saying um, is certainly, certainly still holds. Like how demanding is a is a mitigation scenario based on self-interest actually going to be? And indeed, the nations that will gain most from a treaty are the poorer nations, right? There is something a bit backwards about that. It's like well. Uh, the poorer nations, in some sense, m should be willing to pay for the climate change treaty because they benefit more, let's say, uh, from a um, from a more stable climate than the richer countries that have more flexibility, more res more sort of infrastructure at their disposal already, uh, which. Uh, is somewhat counterintuitive. So, I mean, Posner and Weisbeck make a bit of a feature of that, actually. Part of their point is, look, everyone should realize that it's not worth turning some of these treaties down if, if it's in their interests. Um, uh, 
and it does require more contribution of climate to climate change mitigation from poorer places than other proposals, right, the self-interest base. But on the other hand, it is a parietal improvement for everyone, and they do emphasise that they actually think global justice requires quite a lot from nations. It's just that it shouldn't be packed into a climate change treaty. So it depends how comfortable you feel with climate change, this isolationist approach to climate change. Can we leave other issues of global justice to other contexts? So in, we might think, nonetheless, there should be huge distribution of wealth from rich to poor, but that can happen in another treaty. Let's just try and make a climate change solution that's in everyone's interest. That, that's their idea. But people are concerned that the rest of the stuff is not going to happen in other treaties, right? I think that's the major concern that people have. Let me just think loudly for two minutes that will, that's what I want to do. Uh, the best thing you said is uh, obligation to the future generations Yeah, for me. Um, uh, last month, uh, Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations produced a report uh, uh, that is uh, good for our youngsters. Um, that's our obligation, and um, I think people will look at it. All of us should look at it. Okay, then um, you have dichotomy of um, uh, looking at nations. Uh, uh, I'm not very happy because there's a huge gap between even among the developing countries. There's a huge gap between the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, the poor marginalized have sometimes nothing to live for, um, uh, whereas uh, the upper part has everything, uh, grabbed everything from the poorer marginalized people. Mm -hmm. So I am not very happy about uh, separating nations. So we may separate people as rich, richer people and poorer people. Even in the richer people country here, uh, I have been reading that in the last five or six years, uh, thousands of youngsters have been signing up, uh, pledging not to fly uh, for several years now, which is a good thing. But at the same time, uh, some people are just flying around all the time. To We um, um, are talking about... Uh, I don't want to, I want to look at it, uh, uh, the whole thing as a system, not even climate or this issue or that issue separately, but all these uh, together. For example, this climate change, temperature, uh, carbon, uh, then that is resources being used up. So we have to look at the resource. Fracking, we are breaking the rocks now. Uh, what are we leaving the children for? Um, this is a, so we have to look at the whole system, and some people are promoting tourism, uh, cheap flights, cheap holidays, which is so <laughs> atrocious. Uh, so we have to balance all these. Uh, um, so I like to look at the whole system, and I like to see now the one of the things that uh, is in the last month's report is. Shall I, shall I respond to the first bit? Okay. Uh, first. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, otherwise, I'll, I'll lose my thread. Uh, but uh, anyway, thanks. Uh, let me try and go through the, um, uh, some of the issues. So you're right that you know, one of the discussions has been what's this initial question, who should uh, bear responsibility for dealing with climate change? The who uh, 
some people think, you know, really, uh, if we're looking at um, if we're looking at accounts of justice or ethics, it should be individual people that we're concerned about, uh, especially given the huge differences between rich and poor within countries, right? It's like uh, that we need to distinguish individuals rather than at the nation level. But uh, So I think that's an important point, right? And maybe it's just partly pragmatic reasons why uh, we stick to talking about nations because they have the coercive power in some cases, at least. Even that's obviously not not strictly true, but in a kind of idealized setting, nations have some coercive power to restrict emissions, right? So that, that's the reason for focusing on nations. Um, uh, as for de- so uh, this is not to say individuals can't make their own contributions, as you suggest, uh, that are not coerced by governments. Like we can all choose not to take flights and so on. Um, but I guess the discussion is, is at the level of what can be enforced um, in, in what I was presenting, right? Not about individual uh, contributions that are not enforced. Um, uh, and we should look at the problem holistically. Maybe you're more in sympathy with the kind of more broader accounts of global justice somewhere and where dealing with climate change fits in as one part of the picture. Maybe, maybe that is more appealing to you than isolating the problem of, of climate change. Yeah. Gentlemen, you can go ahead, Jack. Yeah, uh, with your idea of uh, minimal, minimally just yeah. conception, so you kind of suggested that we should not take cause of I mean, I don't have a full answer to that because it's sort of, it's one of the main things that's, that's bothering me and it's not an easy, I, I want to make use of this concept of minimal justice or at least not a backward step and I'm not exactly sure what it amounts to, um, especially in this time extended context, right? So there is something uncomfortable about thinking that the status quo is just what nations would emit anyway as a projection um, and that if that's maintained it's kind of uh, re- retaining the, the current justice situation um, uh, I'm also not sure what a plausible uh, alternative is I mean the other idea is that take a snapshot in time and the The level of inequality there is in the world we don't want to, to get worse than that right um, uh, so yes I think it's a good question I'm not sure right I think it's it I think it is a, an interesting question though I mean that that's uh, that's part of the 
point, I guess, to like what sort of issues arise when you start thinking about in these non-ideal terms um, that are that are worth trying to answer. Uh, yeah. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for, for the argument you're putting forward, but I don't agree that it's the key question. Okay. The, the rich and powerful people of this world will put insuperable obstacles in the way of the kind of policies you, you're putting forward. And, and because of that, it's, it's not a political economic question. The, 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 it, it's a question of how are you going to stop the greedy people from being greedy? It's a psychological issue. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, I guess that, so there is an issue of, uh, of realism, right? Um, or how much can we expect, how much are people actually going to do, right? But there's, there is a, this sort of goes back to partly the first question, although it's more about the contribution of political philosophy to, to practice, right? Um, there is evidence that in these discussions around the table, people are m at least uh, take notice of the moral arguments. It does frame the discussion in some way, right? So even the kind of ideal moral arguments end up, um, I think, uh, being part of the, uh, of the discourse in the practical setting. Now, the idea of sort of being more realist is precisely to... Uh, you know, at least if we can convince people it's in their interest, where admittedly their interest does involve a certain care for future generations, um, so it might still be unrealistic in that sense, it's at least in their interest to, uh, to do some amount of mitigation. That might be not a bad start, right? But you're not convincing the rich and powerful. But it, if it's in their interest... It's in their interest, but they don't know it. Right, well, but maybe people are, could be more persuaded, persuadable uh, if, uh, on issues of their interests uh, rather than being asked to do uh, what is morally just that's not in their interests, right? Now, I admit there's still a lot in their interest here still does involve a certain care for the future uh, if we're going to get any substantial mitigation. But, uh, but, yeah, the idea is maybe we can at least convince actors to be rational. That would be nice. <laughs> Question down here. Uh, yeah, you talked about the sharing of resources. Yeah. Uh, a little top understanding how that might work. And uh, apart from the political angle, the set of lawsuits in my career, um, the real issue is that actually getting more resources, if you see from the developing world that had actually, hadn't actually led to like global justice it led to more more, more global injustice or global justice and climate justice shouldn't and wouldn't it also give an incentive to just keep developing exploring fossil fuels which is we're told we have to get off uh, and what about pros like actually paying people for not developing resources they have so you have to kind of protect the air in, in, in that kind of way and isn't the real issue like a global carbon tax? Wouldn't it have a, a much better uh, address to the problem? 
Um, so you might have to um, repeat some of the initial, initial points, but about the carbon tax, um, uh, how, does the, how does the carbon tax fit in? So um, uh, it's taxing the polluter, right? Um, I mean, it depends whether this is a... Na- if it's a national responsibility, it looks very similar to to giving out quotas of emissions rights, right? Um, so it's just a mechanism for reducing emissions that has certain costs to nations, you might say. So I don't think that's an, actually an alternative. Uh, it's, it's just one means of, um, of going about this mitigation that will have costs to the various actors, right? And the question is sort of how much cost should we impose on these various actors? So, I, yeah, um, but I'm not sh- I, 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 I wasn't sure about the earlier part of the question. So you talked about earlier about sharing resources, I can't say, obviously, you say that the source of from, from humanity to mine and stuff, they're, they're not evenly spread. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. How would you actually go legally about to actually saying this is how many resources yeah. you can add? You'll have a huge political... Or yeah, yeah. In the US, I can imagine it'll have a lawsuit after another lawsuit can't be. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, that you may consider that a very ideal scenario that is a long way off any political reality. Some philosophers have tried to cash out. I mean, it's even hard logically to cash out that ideal scenario. Some philosophers have tried to do it. Who's tried to do that? Uh, like some kind of like egalitarian discussing the, 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 how to measure the resources that, um, or the distribution of resources around the world in terms of uh, purchasing power. I mean, the, the tricky thing is a lot depends on other, you know, pieces of land become very expensive because everyone wants to live there, right? And yeah. so it, it fluctuates, these the evaluations. Uh, it's a very tricky task logically, and you're right, it's, a, it's not looking like... You know, Australia is not about to share all its mineral no. wealth with the rest of the world. Yeah. But also, if you, if you, by doing that, you also look into the future and say, actually, we want to keep developing these resources. Sort of stuff. And if one healthy argument can't find to look to alternatives and actually get get off. And so that is part of the idea. Like, if you think of, say, the equal sacrifices view, the idea is, you know, Australia, uh, if it wasn't trying to mitigate, would do a certain amount of coal extraction and burning coal, let's say. Um, The world, as part of a treaty, Australia signs up and says, all right, we're not going to do that. We're going to sacrifice some of our GDP per capita that we would have had from that, and we're going to sacrifice the same amount as you guys are going to sacrifice doing the measures that you guys are doing, right? So, yeah, the idea is you do keep resources in the ground, but it gets factored in as a cost. Yeah. Yeah, I have a slightly related but maybe more practical question. In this country, there's an emerging debate about how green solutions, forms of green energy, other green initiatives should be paid for. Uh, Should the energy suppliers be allowed to uh, price up to, uh, to pay for these initiatives, yeah. or should there be some form of government tax? Uh, and uh, obviously the former, given the high proportion of energy in 
poorer people's household budgets is a, is a kind of aggressive solution. I just wondered what advice you would give to policymakers uh, in the context of your uh, uh, analysis. Well, um, so that there's a further question. I mean, we can um, we can stratify these issues of justice. So I've been talking about uh, the um, the costs to nations as a whole, right? Um, because they tend to be the agents at the decision-making table um, uh, at the international level. But there's a further question of, you know, maybe Australia, maybe each country has um, its own goals, right, and its own ways of mitigating that have certain costs. How is it going to divide these costs amongst its own population, right? And you might think quite different, depending on what you think the relation between global justice and justice within the state is, you might think quite different principles hold there, right? Um, uh, do we want to pass on these costs to each consumer? I'm basically not going to answer your, your question. I mean, my, my own view is sort of more in favor of, uh, not, of sort of taxing the, the well-off, the, the, the energy companies should bear the brunt or uh, taxation should occur as normal people should be cushioned from the rising en energy prices. But, you know, there is the domestic political uh, uh, philosophy debate around those sorts of issues as well. I mean, it's a further question. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of hands went up simultaneously. I think you were slightly quicker than you were. <laughs> You talked about everything in relation to the nation state, and I just was interested in your view about the major multinational corporates and their role within this for a few reasons. One, many of them are much bigger than yeah. individual nation states, uh, and we have a kind of democratic deficit if they're not included. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they genuinely have a multinational interest in the way that no nation state does, and they don't have a political cycle which drives a kind of short-term agenda. So I just wondered what you think that place should be at the table. Yeah, I mean, so, of course, the nation-state model is quite um, idealized already because even amongst nations, there's different extents to which governments are representative of their, their people and, and so on. And we think of some states as more legitimate than others. Um, the I guess I was wanting to concentrate on those actors. The hope would be to cover all of the people emitting um, who can also have enforcements on them, right? Now, if multinationals slip out of that net, which they probably do, um, then that is a problem, right? Because we were trying to cover sort of all the emissions in the world by having all the nation states at the table. Um, uh, so I guess in that case uh, I mean and people these days are also interested in negotiations that only involve a, a portion of the nation states I guess you, you just want to hope that you can create scenarios that um, enough nation states have, uh, uh, requiring certain amounts of emissions reductions that it then becomes um, in the interests of multinationals to join in or that penalties can be imposed on them 
in the end, you are relying on a certain amount of coercion of these multinationals. Um, but yeah, but it would move. It, it would be another discussion about sort of voluntary um, corporate responsibility to have the the multinationals di directly involved in this discussion. If that makes sense. Um, I guess I think they've got big commercial interests. I don't think it's necessarily voluntary. I mean, if you're Coca Cola, yeah. your biggest potential markets are in areas where people, you know, potentially going to suffer most through climate change. So I think on your gain approach. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Now that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. If, if certainly on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. That might be an advantage of that Klausner Weisbach focus on self-interest. That it can involve different types of actors. Actually, doesn't so much rely on coercion, uh, because you're trying to sell it as in people's self-interest. So yeah, that that is that's that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks. Am I fast enough this time? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. So some, you talk about ensuring equal access to sustainable development as a new way of looking at this sort of picture. How yeah. demanding, principled, and realistic is this new concept of equal access to sustainable development? Um, you'll have to flesh it out a bit for me. So what does it entail? Rather than looking at just at one point in time, it's sort of a dynamic process. Yeah. So also, they're trying to take it out of a zero-sum game to a win-win situation. Right, right. I, I, uh, uh, are you a colleague of Marcus? Um, oh, Marcus Hill, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. I sure. did recently read his article on this. I, I, I took it as in a similar spirit to this Posner and Weisbach, although with more of more sort of moral language, um, but uh, yeah, my my what I took away from what he was saying was yes, let's let's focus on gains rather than losses, right? Which I think is is a very good uh, starting point. Um, uh, that you know we we shouldn't always be sort of uh, thinking about sort of the losses that people are having to chalk up to mitigate, but rather remembering that actually there's a problem to be solved and there is a reason why we want to solve it because we consider that there's a gain in having a stable climate, right? So I, d I think he's in the same spirit of uh, discussing gains rather than losses. Um, uh, equal access to sustainable development. I'm not sure exactly how that is. That might be a little bit wishful thinking that that will fall out of this positive way of looking at things. There are limitations to focusing on gains. Um, uh, yeah, you're trusting that people care about future generations so that they do consider it a gain. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, First of all, like, I'm really sympathetic with a lot of what people have said around looking elsewhere for the nation states for solutions, and I think it's worth like analysis. And like, I'm, I'm certainly an advocate of various forms of revolution as <laughs> what's needed. Like, if we're going to see a transformation towards like, a just society, we're going to need um, to have a completely different way of organising the world uh, to nation states. But yeah. it's given the conditions you've set, you know, you've set in, in your exploration. Don't you think there's a risk that with arguments such as these, where we're talking about sort of a little bit of self-interest as 
kind of getting us at least to bit closer to that. Yeah. There's a risk that we legitimize those sorts of legitimize nation states in taking sort of um, unambitious treaties, in making unambitious treaties, and don't think there's a risk that we the political power of that unambitious action is sort of overlooked. Um, and yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So yes, I think there is a risk. Um, uh, now, what I like in terms of a counter response is I think if it's emphasized that this is really not contributing very much to um, improving sort of inequalities at the global level, if that's sort of widely acknowledged, then it might counter the risk a little bit rather than pretending that this is a just solution and trying to sort of appeal to arguments like grandfathering to sort of justify the status quo. I'd rather see people just say, yep, look, we're not making much progress here with respect to justice, but we're just trying to solve this one particular problem. I think that bit of honesty could counter that problem a little bit, but nonetheless, there's still, I, I do think there's still a risk of, of not being ambitious enough. So Posner and Weisbach, who I presented at the end, they are very clear that, I mean, they're, they're not... Uh, uh, they have a very demanding account of global justice, actually, uh, that they partially spell out in that book. They don't think it's just a matter of, you know, extra moral uh, efforts that we might make if we feel like it. They, they think justice requires quite a lot um, in terms of reducing inequalities at the global level. But they, they still argue, look, you can do that in other treaties, right? We need to get this climate stuff going as a matter of expediency, so save the other aspirations that you have for the other treaties. But I think, I guess the danger in that is, well, when is going to be the time that we deal with these, you know, that we do try to make some uh, wider improvements if you have a broader account of global justice, right? Surely we should, you know, the, the counter-argument is maybe we should seize every opportunity we have to make a bit of chip away, make more progress, and that we don't want to be too cynical about what can be achieved in a climate treaty. So maybe, you know, there is an argument for trying to address the bigger picture, even when we're dealing with particular problems. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's, like it's the FFC was founded before I was born, and it's taken quite, like, the UN climate obviously it's taken quite a narrow part since then, like, and it shapes kind of how government departments operate, it shapes how everyone takes on Like let's let's get this happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's sort of two counter counter ways of looking at. It. One is here's a global issue that might galvanise our efforts for uh, for global justice. Right. This might be the the wide. You know, it's an issue that affects people everywhere. It might be the very catalyst that we needed 
to start, you know, making some bigger strides. And I think originally that was the hope. It's just that, as you say, uh, there's been a lot of talk and, and not much action, uh, and maybe uh, that idea hasn't really um, proved itself, right? And that a bit of piecemealing of the problem might be more uh, helpful at this stage, yeah, rather than making no progress at all. I think we have time for two very brief questions. You both have your hands up. Casey and then gentlemen the scripture. I'm trying to think through how to compare in practice to approaches that you discussed, both, both of which I understood to be isolationist approaches. Yeah. One of them being the idea that we should try to find an agreement that doesn't make global justice any worse, all things considered. The second being that we should look for a solution that is um, better for each party, the Pareto improvement. Yeah. Um, uh, say we found the most conservative Pareto improvement agreement. Yeah. Do you think that um, could, do you think that would satisfy the first approach as well, or could that, could the most conservative Pareto improvement make global justice worse, all things considered? Yeah, so I wasn't meaning to contrast those. So it's possible that the Pareto improvement is, um, I mean, some people suggest, look, what we should do is, every, what, I mean, here's one suggestion that seems like an advance on justice. It's a, still a Pareto improvement, but basically the rich countries break even. They, they pay quite a lot for mitigation, but only as much as they expect to gain, right? And the, the surplus from the collective action gets shuffled over to the, redistributed to the poorer countries. So you might make a modest improvement in redistribution, but still a Pareto improvement for everyone. And that seems like it wouldn't be a backward step, right? But, I mean, the, the worry with the Pareto improvement is it does rely a lot on care for future generations. Otherwise, not much mitigation actually comes about from appealing to self-interest. Um, and you might think... Even though Posner and Weisbach think, whatever, we can care for future generations in other proposals, you might think it's counterproductive to lose a stable environment in all of this. That would be a step backwards because that good can't be substituted with other goods. Um, so, yeah, it could go... It's, it's not clear that the Pareto improvement is a backward step or a positive step. depends, perhaps, on the actual cashing out of what turns out to be a gain um, and maybe how the group surplus is if we can distribute the group surplus from a Pareto improvement we might, you know there's more or less morally progressive ways to do that <laughs> and the final question of the day um, even though no, there is merit to <coughs> disentangling things and saying, yeah. you know, like it is a system, but we can't take on the whole system at once. Um, I, I think we can still have a solution where we operate and take the knowledge that it is all kind of entangled in, into that solution. Mm -hmm. So, um, because, like you said, it is not a backward step and it's minimal justice, but realistically, like everyone's got their own working conceptions of justice and everything in it. 
it kind of would seem like a backward step in some ways to say it's going to stay as it is now, knowing what we now know, knowing that we're working towards it being better. Um, it's like adding insult to injury in a way. Yeah. It's like, oh, now we're all equal, even though the history has left us in kind of an unequal position. So could we not bring some of the ideal in and kind of shoot towards that in a smaller way, if that makes sense, take one step towards that ideal rather than taking no steps, because maybe that would even have a motivational yeah. thing for the people who actually have to do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think the zero steps is, a, is supposed to be a kind of benchmark, uh, a kind of minimally acceptable, but if we can do better, that, well, that might be great. I mean, actually, that last proposal from Posner and Weisbach is a, in some of parts of the book, they advocate the minimal as being better because it's not efficient to try and solve other problems within a climate treaty. But, um, but mostly people would say, the, yeah, the way I was thinking of it more is just to create a kind of bench, uh, the cutoff point, right? And then uh, as a useful, because the cutoff point might still highlight that quite a lot of mitigation scenarios are still in everyone's interest, right? Which might be a useful thing to um, have public, right? Uh, but then, yes, I think you're right. It wouldn't hurt to be more aspirational um, than that in terms of uh, changing the status quo arrangement. Well, just like in a context where all of the actors on some level care about global justice now, it seems to me to be a backward step to say, let's, let's just not take it into account for this. Oh, okay, but self-interest then might, you might have a broader, okay, maybe I shouldn't have used the term self-interest, it might be, might maybe just uh, by the lights of these different nations, what they think is an improvement, right, or a gain or a loss. It might involve, you know, maybe they're very moral already, uh, and they, you know, they're willing to pay a lot because they value not just the uh, stable climate for their own population, but for the whole globe. Great, you know, all the better for a Pareto improvement. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's necessary to uh, uh, restrict the idea of Pareto improvement to um, uh, to self-interest narrowly construed. Yeah. So in that case, like Canada and Russia, it could be, you know, they're not going to benefit because they still have that other element of their self-interest, which is their, you know, non-self-interest. Their altruism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, they, yeah, even in that scenario, we could appeal to their altruism as reason to contribute. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, it would rely on their, their constituency... Uh, voting that in and so on and so forth, um, but yeah, that that yeah, no no reason that would that would make an even healthier Pareto uh, improvement. Yeah, that's that's a good good point to raise. Yeah, thanks. On that upbeat, altruistic <laughs> note, thank you all for coming. Thank you for your